afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you today. Hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I think that that last song that we sang, to me, is the stickiest song we do. Um, like, I will be singing that in my head the rest of the day. Uh, more, more than any other song we do, I don't know if it's the tune, I hope it's the message more than anything. In fact, that's what I ultimately hope, that it is the message of that song that sticks with me more than just the melody of that song. Um, may, may this week be full of them knowing we are Christians by our love. Um, that's good stuff. All right, last week we began a four-week look at a very practical, very applicable section of First Peter in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It's going to take us four weeks to work through verses 7 through 11. I spent some time talking to you last week about the structure of that passage. Maybe you'll remember this colorful, bulleted version uh, of the passage um, that kind of sets out a reminder of how it works together. Um, we've got the end of all things is near as this basis statement that builds off of and propels us toward these calls of action, calls to action, be of sound judgment, sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer, keep fervent in your love, be hospitable, employ your gifts in serving one another. Those are the four calls to action. And then we circle back to the purpose of all of this. Why do we do these things? So that in all things, God may be glorified through our Lord Jesus Christ. We spent quite a bit of time last week on that basis indicative statement, the end of all things is near. We really, we really spent a lot of time on that. You might remember this image from last week that helped us argue that Peter is referring to the return of Christ when he talks about the end of all things being near. He's referring to the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. We talked about this two-age, this general two-age approach in the New Testament, that there is this age and the age to come, and the, the breaking point, the, the defining moment, is the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ, the final judgment. But we live in this candy-striped section that started with the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas, right? What we celebrate at Christmas, that Christ came to us. And that began, began what is the end of time? What are the last days? We live in that last time. The next thing on the calendar is the end. The next thing that is approaching is the end. And so Peter is writing to us, even now, 2,000 years later, the same way he was writing to them to say, the end of all things is at hand. And Peter is using this nearness of the end, like most of the New Testament authors do, as a motivation for practical righteousness and faithful, godly living. He's not saying, so give yourself to speculation, so give yourself to stargazing, so give yourself to conspiracy theories. He says, so give yourself to godliness, give yourself to holiness. That's the way we should live in light of the nearness of the age. So the end of the age, the nearness of the end, should motivate Christians to live with holiness and to live with urgency. And so I say to the church, I say to the church, the end is near. Think clearly for prayer. Love one another. Be hospitable without grumbling and use your gifts in service. The nearness of the end should motivate non-Christians to repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation. So I say to the world, I say to the world, the end is near. Therefore, repent believe and be saved or else you will perish and these applications about the nearness of the end hold whether we understand that nearness uh, the the end to be the return of christ whether we say oh no it's a cataclysmic event in history or it's the death of the individual the end whatever it is is near and my question is are you ready for that are you ready for the end and are you living like the end is near 
Specifically last week, in light of the nearness of the end, Peter called the people, Peter called us, God called us in his word to clear-headedness, to sound judgment and sobriety. He did not call them, nor are we called to wild speculations. We're not called to hoard canned goods and ammunition in light of the nearness of the end, bottled water and things like that. We're not called to stargazing or superstition. Because the end is near, we are called to think clearly for the purpose of prayer. My favorite quote from last week was from the expository commentary when it said, let me put it this way. The mark of a Christian at the end of the age is a person on his or her knees in prayer. The mark of the Christian at the end of the age is prayer. That's convicting because I don't know that that's what we always do. I don't know that that marks us as Christians at the end of the age, that we are praying people. So for application, I said the end is near. Whatever that means, it should provoke us to action. The nearness of the end should cause us to live with seriousness and urgency. We should have a clear head. That's in contrast with the mixed up, uncontrolled thinking of the lost world. We're to be sober. We're to be self-controlled. That was the call last week. And it was a call to prayer. It was a call to prayer as a private spiritual discipline. We need to be praying in our closets, in the private place. We need to meet with the Father in prayer on a regular basis by ourselves. And we need to be praying people as a matter of our corporate life. When we get together, we should pray. And we have set aside a night every week to do that. Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in this room, we gather together to pray. And it's not just this general, hey, what should should we pray about? It is specifically guided by your pastoral staff to say, let's get our hearts together, let's get our minds together to pray for these things, to pray in this way. Last week, we spent our time lifting up by name the kids that were away at camp at Lake Salatiska. We prayed for their leaders. We prayed for the leaders of the camp that we don't know. We prayed for specific things for some of those kids, things that we knew they needed. We asked the Lord specifically on behalf of them to move in ways that only he can. We asked him to do the things that only he can do. We trust that he did. And we trust that we will see the fruit of that later on. And it's a good, good thing. It's a good, good thing to get together like that in the middle of the week, see each other, hear from each other, sing together, hear from the word together, and spend time in prayer. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to invite you because this week, We're going to do a similar thing with the teenagers who are away at camp. We'll have a list of their names and the names of their leaders. And we will pray specifically for them. In fact, Wednesday morning, Pastor Joe will send me a text message that says, Hey, this kid needs prayer for this. This is what's going on at camp. Pray this way. Like specific needs. And we can be part of the work that God is doing in Kentucky from this room amongst our brothers and sisters. So prayer needs to be part of our corporate life. Wednesday nights at 7 is the main place we do that. We do that other times as well, but Wednesday night at 7 is so important. Well, this week, uh, what we're going to do is move ahead with the second call to action in the text. In light of the nearness of the end, Peter is going to call us to love one another. We're also going to spend a little bit of time today on the purpose of all of this. I didn't get to this much last week, but at the end of the text, it says, do this so that God will be glorified through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Are we sober-minded? Why are we clear-headed in our praying? Why are we fervent in our love for one another? So that God will be glorified. So that God will be, it'll be good for us, for sure. But God will be glorified as we follow him in these ways. So let's read the text together. I'm going to read all of 7 through 11. And then we're going to zoom in on a couple of parts of it, namely verse 8 in particular. So look what God's word says. Read it with me. 1 Peter 4, 7. 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, so thankful for your great love for us, love that is obviously not the result of our loveliness, but love that sees us in our sin and covers that sin by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. You made the sacrifice necessary for us to be forgiven, for us to be restored, for us to be reconciled to you and saved from our sins. We are thankful for your redeeming love that is on display in the cross of Christ. And we pray that you would make that love known to men and women and boys and girls who have yet to experience it today. Open their eyes to your great love for them in the cross. And we pray that you would also help us, your people, to love one another similarly as you have commanded us. Remind us of the great forgiveness we have received from you and help us to forgive others in like manner. Oh Lord, make us one. Let them know that we are Christians by our love. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's, let's start. We're going to look mostly at verse 8, but let's start in verse 7 to be reminded of the basis of this, the, the motivation for it. The end of all things is near, he says, therefore. And we don't want to forget this indicative statement. It seems to be the basis for all these calls to action. The end of all things is near. And I told you last week we want to recover that in our preaching. We want to recover that sense of urgency, that sense of gravity in our preaching. It may seem like things are going to keep going on like this forever. It may seem like we have endless tomorrows ahead. It may seem like nothing ever really changes. But the reality is, the end is near. God tells us in his word, the end is near. The Lord Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there will be a reckoning. Peter's original audience would have received this word well. They would have received the gravity and the urgency of the end being near. Because they were living in days of increasing persecution. Because of their new life as Christians, because of their different way of living, they were strangers and aliens in the land where they were dwelling. And they were scattered all over Asia Minor. They weren't clustered together in thriving Christian communities. They were scattered amongst Asia Minor. They were living as strangers and aliens in that land. In other words, Peter's original audience felt the pressure. They felt pressure. Their life was difficult their life was uncomfortable. Everything to them felt urgent. And therefore, they were looking for. And they were expecting. They were awaiting. They were longing for the end of all things. They were longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we here in America have a harder time hearing this text. Because most of us, for most of us, life is not dangerous. 
Life is not uncomfortable. In fact, Pastor Dylan said last week, life for many of us is dangerously comfortable. It's not dangerous or uncomfortable. It's dangerously comfortable. We don't feel much pressure. We don't live with a sense of urgency. But we should. We should. And that's why I want to emphasize this part of the text, that the end of all things is near. The question is, how do we love each other in these last days? Here, in this room, in the, in the U.S., how do we love each other in these last days when life is fairly comfortable for us? Pastor Dylan was talking about the danger of being addicted to comfort this week. And as he was talking about this, about how comfortable our lives are and how addicted to that comfort we are, I thought about the old story about the princess and the pea. You remember this? Like the one little thing that she just couldn't get comfortable, the one little thing, no matter how many mattresses were stacked up, as I remember the story, she could still feel that one little tiny thing. I wonder how often we are like that princess. We throw a temper tantrum because of the one little thing that makes us uncomfortable in our lives. For us in the U.S., in this church, perhaps the most uncomfortable thing we face is offense. We are offended. That's the P in my mattress. We're offended. And when we get offended, even the slightest offense within the church, we're tempted to just walk away. We get mad, we get angry, and we go home. We get offended, we get angry, or we go to another church. I want you to see that that was not at all a possibility in the first century. That was not at all a possibility for the church to whom Peter is writing. If they were offended by the Christians, where could they go? If they were offended by their brothers and sisters in Christ, where could they turn? They could go to the world, but there's no hope there. They could go back to their families, but they've already been refused by them. They've already been disowned by them. Where would they go? They've got no place to turn except to the church. And so Peter is going to call them to love, to fervent love, even when life is uncomfortable, even when there is offense. John Piper asks the question, what do we know about the end and what it will bring that makes love so essential? Well, we know that in the end there will be a stress on relationships, that there is this crisis that will bring stress on relationships, and so we'll need to love each other well. We know that in the end there is a threat to faith, and people will be tempted to walk away. So love is important. And I'm telling you, even though we don't feel those things right now, even though we don't feel a great stress on relationships, even though we don't feel like our persecuted brothers and sisters do, a, a temptation, a strong temptation to walk away, those things are there. And brothers and sisters, we need to love each other well in this season. We need to love each other with fervency, with commitment, with sacrifice, even now. Jesus speaks about love at the end when he says in Matthew 24, starting in verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will, will arise and will mislead many because of because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Love growing cold. I wonder if that's a mark of the modern church. Let's let this text be a call to fervent love. 
Brothers and sisters, remember, the end is near. Therefore, it's the way Peter sets all this up. The end is near. The end of all things is near. Therefore, look at verse 8. Therefore, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This is the call to action. In light of the nearness of the end, the call to action we're looking at today is to keep fervent in your love for one another. But notice, before he says that, he says, above all. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. We see in this the priority of love, and we see in the commands of Jesus the priority of love. Jesus doesn't count our love for one another as a secondary thing. He counts it as a primary thing. Look at it in John chapter 13. And if you know the context of John chapter 13, you know that this is during the Last Supper, that this is after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, This is after he has predicted his betrayal by Judas. This is just before he leaves the upper room to go to the cross, to go to the garden and go to the cross, right? This is in that context. We see him say this. We see see John say this. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children. I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That, that, that sounds really primary, right? That sounds really important, not just because of the context in which he says it. I mean, this is like the biggest night, right? This is like a most important time, and he says this to them then. He also says, this is a new commandment that I am giving to you. It's really not a new commandment. It's a commandment throughout the scriptures, but he says here, this is a new commandment that I'm giving to you. And he says, this is how they're going to know that you belong to me. This sounds really important, does it not? And so Peter, who was in the room when this happened, is able to say to his audience years later, keep fervent above all. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Look at John chapter 15. This is part of what scholars refer to as the farewell discourse, this section of teaching that happens between the Last Supper and the crucifixion. Again, the context of this, the timing of it is significant. These are last days for Jesus. This is most important teaching from Jesus. And in chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you go, you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. So I think Peter saying, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another fits with the priority of love in the commands of Jesus And it fits with the priority of love in the early church. Particularly, John, whose gospel we were reading from, in his letters, John the apostle who heard, then applied Jesus' commands about love among the people of God. 
these, group, these churches that he was pastoring, that he was overseeing, he then applies in his letter the command to love. Look what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Do you see Pastor John applying the teachings of Jesus to the church and saying it is of utmost importance, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And that's not a one-off thing in John's letters. In fact, if you read even just 1 John and walk away saying love amongst the brothers is optional, you, you, you need to learn how to read. Like, you just can't read it that way. He goes on and on about the importance of love of the brothers being a demonstration of faith in Christ. Look at it in chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Don't you love that? He has loved us in the most self-sacrificing way, in the most counterintuitive way. It was not, oh, look at how lovely these people are. They already love me. And so I will love them in return. Is that the way it went between us and the Lord? <laughs> Certainly not. He looked at us and said, they seem to hate me. They are dead set against me. And I will love them and change them and sacrifice for them to make them something altogether different. That's the love of God. Brothers, if he's loved us that way, we ought to love each other in the same way. Let me give you one more. I could give you six more. Let me give you one more. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Actually, verse 16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Someone says, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And this is why Peter can say, above all, love one another. And we see it actually in practice in the earliest days of the church. As soon as the church is born on the day of Pentecost, as soon as the gospel is pronounced and the Holy Spirit falls and thousands of people are converted, you know what they start doing? They love one another. They come together and they share their goods so that no one has a need, so that everyone is cared for. 
they demonstrate that love naturally. They demonstrate that love supernaturally. As new creations in Christ, they immediately start to love one another. We see the supremacy, the importance, the priority of love amongst the brothers. And so Peter fits. I, I said all that to say this. Peter's command where he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. That fits with the message of Jesus. It fits with the ministry of the early church. And so we need to receive it as a serious call to love. Love for God and love for each other is the essence of all the law and the prophets. That's a different way I could have taught this. That when Jesus is asked to summarize, when Jesus is asked to say, what is the greatest commandment? You know what he says? Love God and love your neighbor. That's the way he talks about it. So Peter fits in saying, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Let's talk about that idea, keep fervent. That's the way NASB translates it. English Standard Version says, earnestly love one another. NIV says, deeply love one another. CSB says, keep constant in your love for one another. The message, which I don't often quote to you, sometimes, sometimes that Peterson guy gets it right, and sometimes he doesn't. He got it right here when he said, most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love each other as if your life depended on it. And for the early church, perhaps it did. And that's why we have a hard time receiving this the same way. Because our relationships here, our, our lives don't depend on them. So we don't love each other the way we should. We need to hear this text as a call to keep fervent in our love for one another. That word fervent has this imagery behind it. Almost every Greek word has a picture behind it or a, or a, a, a gif behind it, like a, a quick little clip of something. And, and the, the image behind keep fervent, the image behind fervent love is this idea of stretching or straining to run. This idea of, of really reaching forward with every muscle, every fiber of your being involved in finishing the race. It is this sweaty effort to move forward. And when I read about this, I couldn't help but think of the end of the Ironman championships in, in Hawaii. This is one of my favorite things to watch. It only happens once a year and very little coverage of it, but it's like the greatest athletic feat in the world. I mean, these guys swim, swim 2.4 miles. Can you imagine swimming that far? 2.4 miles, they swim. And then they get out of the water and they get on their bikes and they pedal 112 miles. And then they get off their bikes and they run an entire full marathon, 26.2 miles. And some of them are doing this in like six hours. This is outrageous, this is 12 hours. This is outrageous and crazy. And the videos of them at the end are incredible, right? After all of this, somehow they find the energy deep down to really make a hard push to the end. And my favorite is when they show those dudes in slow motion. Slow motion, I mean, they're like dehydrated, they're fit as can be, and you can watch every muscle in their body fire as they're trying to make it to the finish line. That's the picture of the way we should love one another. It's this, I'm exhausted, I am worn out, I've got hardly anything left, but I'm going to give everything I've got to finish this race. I'm going to give everything I've got to love you. I'm going to strain and I'm going to stretch and it's going to take sweat and effort and that's the way we're going to love because that's the way God has loved us, right? His love for us is not the picture of grandpa sitting back on the recliner with the remote control, zapping love toward us. 
No, his, the picture of his love for us is sweaty and gritty, is it not? And so Peter says to us, above all, keep fervent. John MacArthur says of this idea of fervent love, he says, such love is sacrificial. It's not sentimental and requires a stretching of a believer's every spiritual muscle to love in spite of insult, injury, and misunderstanding from others. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But I want you to see for now this idea of it's not sentimental. It requires stretching and sweat. Notice also that he says, keep fervent. Keep fervent in your love for one another. And, and that implies that this is something that is already established amongst these people. I, I, I fear that for many folks, I can't preach it that way. I, I got to preach like, get fervent. Get fervent in your love for one another. Not keep fervent, but get fervent in your love for one another. Love, love like this. And once you start loving like this, let me, let me be the guy that says, keep it up. Keep loving each other like that. It's a long race, but the end is near. The end is near, so keep fervent in your, don't give up. Don't give up close to the finish line. Keep fervent in your love for one another. So that's fervent. Keep fervent. He calls us, though, to keep fervent in our love for one another. And the word for love here is the word agape, the Greek word agape. And you know, if you've been around here for any time at all, that there are several words for love in the Greek language, in the original language of the New Testament. It's not like English where, where I say, I love Laura and I love hot dogs and I love fireworks and it's all one word and the score is 30 love in Wimbledon. Uh, it's all the same word and it means a thousand different things. Well, in Greek, there are a bunch of different words. And this word is agape. Agape, one scholar says, is defined as a deep and profound sacrificial love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstance. That's a pretty good definition, right? It's not sentiment. It's not grandpa kicked back on the recliner. It's persistent, and it transcends circumstances. It's sacrificial and deep. That's the love that we are called to one another. Another scholar says it like this, agape love is unconcerned with the self and concerned with the greatest good of another. Agape is, isn't born out of just emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will as a choice. Let me stop there and say, that's, that's good. That's good to remember in this room because when we look around at each other, we might not always be attracted to love one another. We might not always say, oh, that guy is easy to love, and so I will love him because it just, it just fits, just works. Sometimes we look at each other in this room and we say, I don't know. I don't know about them. I don't know. That, 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 that hurts. Seems like every time I get close, it hurts. And yet we are called to this kind of love with one another. This scholar goes on and says, agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. Is that how God loves us? You bet. How he loves us. And that's how he's called us to love one another. Keep fervent in your love for one another within the church. Your love for one another. He's writing to believers about loving each other. In the Bible, we are certainly called to love all kinds of people. We're called to be generous. We're called to be gracious. We're called to be kind to all of our neighbors. Amen to that? Like we don't get to be grumpy with our neighbors who are lost. Like we have a, we have a call to love and, and, and compassion toward them. 
But in the Bible, we are called especially to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to give them priority, to love and serve and sacrifice for them, to give them the very best of our love because they are our families. And I fear that so often, just like we do with our physical families, we give them something less than that. Like we put our best foot forward for the outsiders. We go the extra mile for the outsiders. But at home, we're rough, we're ugly, we're mean with each other. Oh, let's reverse that. Let's give the, let's give the very best of our love to our brothers and sisters. And let's give consistent love to our neighbors. Let's prioritize our love for one another. And in order to do that, we've got to be engaged with one another. We can't be in isolation and fulfill this command. We can't live by ourselves and fulfill this command. It implies relationship. It implies community. But then let's read on. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And that last phrase lends some clarity to all that came before it. I want to be clear, though, our love for one another does not cover sins in the same way that God's love for us covers sins. In our relationships with one another, there's not atonement. There's not propitiation like we see when we look at the cross of Jesus. His love covers our sins by making atonement for our sins, covers our sins by making propitiation for our sins so that our sins are taken away. On the cross, God dealt once and for all with sin so that we might be brought to him. We saw that in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 18. For Christ has also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Our love doesn't do that. Our love for one another doesn't do that. But our love for one another is modeled after that. In that we love each other enough to cover sins. We love each other enough to cover sins. I believe he's talking about sins committed against us personally within the church. I think he's talking about slights and offenses and insults and injuries that happen within the church. And here, Peter is calling us to cover those sins in the name of love, particularly to no longer hold those things against one another for the good of the church and for our witness to the world. It is better for us to cover those things than to respond in kind. If we've received an injury, if we've received an insult, if we've received an offense from someone in this room, perhaps Peter is calling us to say, I'm just going to cover that instead of turning it around. I'm just going to cover that instead of fighting back. Biting back might be better language. The ESV Study Bible says of this verse, where love abounds, offenses are frequently overlooked and quickly forgotten. I like to hold on to those things, though. I don't like to forget when so-and-so didn't talk to me in the hallway. I don't like to forget when such-and-such didn't fulfill my expectations. But where love abounds, those things are overlooked and quickly forgotten. Expository commentary says it like this. Peter is not suggesting that we sweep under the rug every bad thing that happens or, in the name of love, let people run roughshod over us and others. His point is is that when love flourishes, we are not easily offended, but are willing to endure injustices. And as I was reading that, I thought, that, that, that willingness to endure injustice breaks the downward spiral that happens so often in the church. 
the willingness to just take it, cover it, and move on breaks the downward spiral that destroys churches, that destroys relationships. It's got to stop somewhere, right? Why not let it stop with you? Why not let it stop with me? Karen Job says, a person who is under the control of godly love acts when a private personal injury has been done to him as though nothing had occurred. In this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. She goes on and says, This consideration gives dignity and worth inestimable to the feeble efforts of the most insignificant of us to make love the controlling principle of our daily lives. I have no idea what that last part means. But I think the first part is gold. Take it and it dies and it doesn't leave any seed. Cover it and it dies and doesn't leave any seed. And every one of us can do that. One last quote, R.C. Sproul, just because he's got such a great attitude about all this. He says, Nothing will destroy a church faster than pettiness, people picking at each other over trivial things. We can destroy one another by nitpicking. Covering love is how families survive. You've seen that? Relationships destroyed by nitpicking? You've been guilty of that? It's picking other people to death? Covering love is how families survive, and we are a family, and we want to survive. So we must, above all, fervently love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That's what we're called to. Cover it. Cover it. For the good of the family and for the glory of God. Look at the end of the text. The very end of this whole passage says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that indicates the purpose of all this. In all things refers to all of what we've been talking about and we'll talk about in the next few weeks. In our clear-headed praying, in our self-sacrificing love, in our ungrumbling hospitality, in our wholehearted service, in all of our life together as God's people, the goal is the glory of God. It is not just about you flourishing. It is not just about us living in harmony. It is about God being glorified as you flourish and as we live in harmony. It's about God being made much of because where else will that happen? Where else in the world will that kind of thing happen? Where else is love covering a multitude of sins? Where else are people overlooking nitpicking? Where else are injuries set aside and move, move forward? That will only happen amongst the body of Christ. And it must happen amongst the body of Christ. Got to be glorified by our faithful and obedient living. To be glorified as we just do what he tells us to do. So that honors him and it evidences that we belong to him. And the other thing that's going on in 1 Peter is that God will be glorified by our powerful witness in the world. Right? Rewind in your head to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, or look on the screen. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul, which include vengeance and retaliation and getting even. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. So for like two months, I gave you the same three applications, right? Number one. This world is not our home. We are aliens and strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
We belong to him and his kingdom, right? Number two, there is a war within. The spirit and the flesh are constantly at war with one another. Number three, there is a world to win. And I, I think all three of those things are here in this text as well, and it adds a fourth one, and the end is near. All of those things are true, and the end is near. So you better be serious about this. We don't have a lot of time to love each other, so let's, be, let's keep fervent. Above all, let's keep fervent in our love for one another. I wrote in my notes, the end is near, so love big. And we need to do a little self-evaluation. <laughs> Pastor Dylan had some gold. He was, he was on this week for sure. And he said last week, we talked about nobody's given themselves an A-plus in prayer. And we talked about prayer. If you're doing self-evaluation, nobody, nobody's given themselves an A-plus in prayer. Too many of us give ourselves an A-plus on love. We like look at ourselves and like, yeah, I'm, I'm loving big. Keep fervent in our love. I wonder if this text causes us to consider that a little bit. And the way I want us to work through that self-evaluation is first, I want us to ask ourselves, what are the... What are the multitude of sins that have been covered in your life? Consider the multitude of sins that have been covered by the love of God in the sacrifice of Christ in your life. How much have you been forgiven? How much atonement, how much propitiation in the blood of Christ was poured out for you? And what if it hadn't been covered? What if your sin had not been covered by God? What if he acted like we do and kept a record and brought them up all the time? What if he didn't remove those things as far as the east is from the west and consider them no more? Maybe the first step in really learning how we should love one another is to spend some time considering the love of God for us and how he covered a multitude of our sins. And some of you, when you consider that, will realize you've not been forgiven of your sins. Your sins are not covered by God. You've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And maybe today's the day you need to do that. I'll invite you to do that now. Like turn away from your sins, trust in Christ. He died for sinners so that they could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Repent and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, though, consider what are the multitude of sins that have been covered by the blood of Jesus. Number two, what are the multitude of sins that you need to cover? Maybe to ask this a different way is, how have you been offended by somebody in this room? You're holding on to that. Somebody's going to have to pry it out of your cold, dead hands. Holding on to it and you're not going to let it go. What are those things that you need to cover by the blood of Jesus in his name? Not because you're a big, strong person and you can take it, but because you have been forgiven much. You say, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not going to hold on to that anymore. I'm going to cover that. I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. I'm going to move on. I'm going to move forward because you are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. What are the multitude of sins that you need to cover? How have you been offended? Thirdly, what are the multitude of sins that you need to cover? Because you've done the offending. And you need to seek reconciliation. 
And I, I add this because I think some people are going to find this text and be like, I'm so glad he's preaching this today because I really offended so-and-so and maybe now they'll just forgive me and move on. Like, that's messed up. If you're thinking it that way, you're like, yes, he's giving me a get-out-of-jail-free card because I offended Bud a while back and now Bud can't hold it against me anymore. Like, if that's what's going on in your head, no, 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 no. If in this process you realize, oh, my brother has something against me because I offended him. You know what Jesus says? Leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. Don't just expect him to cover it. Go seek reconciliation with the brother you have offended. He's got something against you because you did something to him. That's one way we can cover the offenses we've given out. We can seek reconciliation. We can, in humility, apologize. Maybe that needs to happen. What are the things you need to cover because you've been offended? And what are the things you need to cover because you've done the offending? And maybe there's a tie to last week. Maybe, maybe if we are praying for one another, like if we are clear-headed and sober for the purpose of prayer, and part of that involves praying for one another, we'll be less likely to hold on to those offenses. If we're looking for good things, if we're asking the Father for good things for each other, we'll be less likely to hold a grudge. Maybe there's a connection in all of this. In fact, I'll argue next week there is a connection. There's a progression, in fact, in all of this. Maybe you've already seen that. And the last thing is connected to the broader message of 1 Peter. Peter has told us we are strangers and aliens in the world. We are strangers and aliens scattered around in Asia Minor. We are strangers and aliens scattered around in enemy territory in Babylon. So we need each other. We cannot afford to be soft in our love for one another. We cannot afford to be so offended that we forget you. Above all, the end is near. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us uh, to reflect on your great love for us and help us to live in response to that in our great love for one another. Remind us that the end is near. Compel us to keep fervent in our love for one another so that you'll be glorified as we live together as your people. Father, where we need encouragement today, give it. Where we need rebuke, give it. Help us to respond in humble obedience to you. And Father, as we talk about your sin-covering love, we recognize that there are some, perhaps many, uh, who hear this and don't know of your great forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, make it known to them today like you did for us. Teach them about your holiness. Teach them about their sinfulness. Teach them about Christ's sacrifice in their place. And, Father, give them faith to trust in Christ. Give them repentance to turn from sin and save them, not just for their good, but for your glory so that you will be glorified through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.